the Team Performance Podcast with Spencer Horn and Christian Napier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Team Performance Winning Ways for Uncertain Times podcast. I'm Christian Napier, and I am joined today by the man in purple with a purple background. It's Purple Day here in the USA, Spencer Horn. Spencer, how are you? Great, thank you, and and uh, great to be with you, Christian. And I also now have purple drapes. Wow. Well, you're totally color-coordinated. Spencer, how was your weekend? <laughs> It was uh, it was good. My uh, my wife and I got to spend time alone. We usually have the somebody, the kids, uh, grandkids, somebody there. So we were able to to just enjoy some some time and relax and go out to dinner, um, just read together, watch movies, all kinds of fun stuff. And now she's in in Dallas with uh, watching our, our grandkids again. Ah, so she went down there. I assume she flew. She did. Yeah, she flew, and and uh, our our kids are are looking at um, some some changes to their family, and so she's there watching them while they're out uh, doing some uh, some reconnaissance. What about you? What was your what was your weekend like? Well, I flew down to Southern California, so that was my first experience on a plane since the COVID pandemic. So that was interesting. And uh, I just visited family there Friday and got back um, last night. So I was gone for just a few days. Well, so interesting. Come on. Details here. Come on. Well, details is it's wicked hot everywhere. It's hot here. It's really hot there. Um, The family I was visiting is around Victorville. So it was like 107, 108 degrees. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, very, very, very toasty. And I heard that we hit 130 degrees in Death Valley over the weekend. That's right. And that could be a world record. Could potentially, may even be broken today. Could potentially get broken today. We'll see. So when it gets that hot, birds literally drop out of the sky dead. Well, I hope uh, I never see that in person. that is really really hot i just want to move that from my brain i don't want to see that image anymore well spencer i'm super excited to have you introduce our guest today because we've already spoken with him once before to prepare for this podcast and i'm really really excited to have a conversation with him so why don't you go ahead and introduce him absolutely thank you christian we are so grateful to have our guest today, Patrick Weems, who is the uh, executive director and founder of the Emmett Till Interpretive Center in Sumner, Mississippi. And this is a, uh, a really interesting project that Patrick is, is managing. And, and he's somebody who is very connected in, in the South, in this Mississippi community. And he's really focused on building community. He's focused on uh, being a social entrepreneur and a philanthropy leader. And really the focus of his work, Christian and our listeners, is to really create a path towards um, restorative justice and social healing. And you know, this is such a germane issue right now all around the country and certainly in many places around the world. But in this country, you know, we've had months of uh, unrest and, and challenges and, and uh, concerns and protests around, you know, social justice. And and so we we've really felt like it would be um a great topic to to talk about just for us to be able to learn a little bit more how we can be more aware of where some of the the feelings and emotions are coming from and you know patrick has has really grown up in in the middle of the south and, and where a lot of these challenges came from and he's got really experience working with uh, transformational change and so he's bringing that experience to to help build trust in the community because really that healing is not going to happen unless trust is created and i think that's really the purpose of this podcast today is how can we create more awareness? How could we increase trust between all parties concerned in this country and in places around the world? And really, there's no 
better topic than the Emmett Till story to talk about why this is such an important thing right now. And, and really the work that, that Patrick is doing is, is so important. I want to share a little bit more of his experience. He's uh, really, he's working um, and co-founding a youth institute that is um, really about experiential learning for youth and this is a program for the William Winter Institute for Racial Reconciliation. And as I said, this interpretive center that he's helped co-found and now executive directs is really about telling the story of, of Emmett Till and the tragedy that surrounds uh, Emmett Till to help facilitate healing in, in his community. And I think that's a story that can translate to the wider community here in the United States to help us. So Patrick, did I butcher that too much? Is that, I mean, that's a little bit about what you're doing. I know there's a lot more to it than that. No, that's perfect. It's a, uh, 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 you know, I got, I've got my work uh, started as a youth organizer, um, helping, helping young people understand these important stories and um, have been fortunate to, stumble my way into being the co-founder and, and executive director of Bennett Sill Interpretive Center. So um, that's it in a nutshell. So yeah, you, you nailed it, Spencer. Okay. Well, thank you. You're very kind, but I, I, I like the, the, the metaphor stumbling into it. Will you talk about that? How did you stumble into this? What was it that, that got you interested in, in this project? Yeah, so I, I grew up in Mississippi, um, and like a lot of young people who grew up in um, kind of a rural state, you know, there's there's an impulse to to get out of out of that state and, and go somewhere else, and uh, especially Mississippi uh, because it's it, a lot of people say it's the last, it's last, and everything that's good, uh, and it's first, and everything that's bad, right? And it's got that reputation of, of just being a real stagnant state as far as progress goes, and so. Um, my impulse was to leave. Uh, I went to school down in New Orleans uh, for a little while uh, and transferred to the University of Mississippi the, the time of Katrina. Um, and it was there uh, at the University of, of Mississippi that um, is well known um, for the riots that took place when um, the first black student tried to integrate in 1962, uh, which led to multiple people dying. Uh, at the same time that the Cuban Missile Crisis was happening uh, under Kennedy. And um, so it has this long legacy of, of racial strife. And so I, I went to that university. Um, and while it, was, it had integrated, there was still um, not a lot of social co cohesion, right? Uh, black students were on this side of the campus. White students were on the other side. And I didn't even know where the international students hung out, right? And so I began ask, asking questions, right? Like I asked you know, we're supposedly in this post-racial society where race doesn't matter, and yet it's obvious that that it still still mattered. And so, um, that and we're talking about the last decade is still that that social separation. Yeah. So, I mean, I I, I joined the fraternity system, which is uh, big at, at at the University of Mississippi at Ole Miss, and uh, you know there was zero black students in the entire white Greek fraternity system, right? And we had 30% African-Americans on campus. None of them felt comfortable in that Greek space. So um, that was one thing that kind of got us uh, asking questions. I, I was able to get one black student um, into my fraternity um, and that started to snowball uh, into the other Greek systems. But yeah, I mean, you're talking about 2005 and literally 100% white space and 100% black space. Um, and, and a lot of it was just what people were used to, right? They came from um, private schools that were, were segregated and they came from uh, public schools that were majority black. And so oftentimes, you know, that's what, what, we, what, what we do. Uh, but, but it was there that I, that I started asking questions and um, started really listening deeply uh, to students of color, black students in particular, and they were telling me stories about being called the N-word, um, not being called on class the entire year. Um, and and my, my worldview just started expanding and expanding. Um, and luckily, there was, there was an institute there for racial reconciliation. Um, and it was called the William Winter Institute, named after one of our governors of Mississippi. 
Um, and they, they worked with communities that have gone, undergone racial trauma. Um, and that's the best way to describe it. Uh, places like Philadelphia, Mississippi, where three civil rights workers in 1964 uh, were murdered. Um, Mississippi uh, burning uh, uh, was about that, about that case. And so uh, they worked with that community, um, began some honest conversations and trust building that led to the first conviction uh, in that case for 50, for 50 years, 40 years, excuse me. So 40 years to the date of the murder, they finally had justice in that case. So it took 40 years. So talk about why that's so important. I mean, it took 40 years for that to happen. I mean, because that, so, so that really erodes some of the trust that we're talking about here, that, that racial healing that we're talking about, because it, it take, you know, takes four decades for, for the, the perpetrators of those murders to, to be brought to justice. I mean, if I'm related to that or know about it and, and, and I'm thinking, why? Why is that taking so long? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, can you imagine your loved one being brutally murdered? Everybody knows who did it. Um, the reason that he was never convicted was because he was a preacher and there was a hung jury several times in the 1960s because they refused to indict a preacher. I don't know what type of gospel he was, he was preaching, right? But uh, that, that, was, that was their reasoning. And so this community um, saw this murderer go to the same coffee shop every morning. He, he, he hung out in their downtown area and had never spent a day in jail, even though he was a mastermind, the main KUKA KKK member who, who orchestrated this murder of, of two white men um, from the north and one black man who, who lived in Mississippi. And so that, that, talk about distrust, right? Talk about living with these legacies of, of injustice. Um, that's what it was like for many in Mississippi and still today, right? That, that there was never any sense of justice or doing what was right. And so it's never too late. Um, and in order to have the healing and reconciliation that we all want, in order to have that racial harmony that, that we all want, they said, we, we first need justice. And so let's bring this guy to jail. Let's do the right thing. And then we can begin some of that healing work. And so our community saw that in Tallahatchie County, um, where Emmett Till was brutally murdered, um, kidnapped from his uncle's home, tortured in a barn, and then thrown into the Tallahatchie River, only to be found three days later. Um, his murderers, um, and there was at least seven people that were involved in his murder, never went to jail. Um, his mother decided to have an open casket in Chicago. Um, Emmett had been, was from Chicago, but was visiting relatives in Mississippi. Uh, her open casket ceremony in Chicago shocked the world. Um, this happened in 1955 and, um, photography and, um, TV was in, in everybody's home at the time. Everybody had that one black and white TV. Um, and so this story began to ripple across the nation. Um, John Lewis, who just recently passed, talked about how Emmett Till was his George Floyd, right? That it was, it was a thing that, that, that made him so upset, so angry that John Lewis changed his life. And so, um, so I was able to uh, be a part of this institute that did this type of work. Um, and it just really set off a, a domino in my life um, that, that, that allowed me to be a part of this work. Um, and so um, I came to Sumner, Mississippi, which is a town of 500 uh, in 2007. Um, they were offering a, a first apology ever to the Till family. Um, so 50 years went by without the family even having any type of healing or closure or justice. Um, they, our community um, brought them back to Mississippi, offered an official apology and began. Patrick, sorry to interrupt. Who, who yeah. was it that offered that apology? I mean, you said our community. Who, who took that 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 responsibility? Yeah. So there was there was two people who kind of led the initiative. Um, um, a, a, a black man named Jerome G. Little, 
um, who, who was the, the head of the County board of supervisors. Um, so we're, you know, in a rural area, um, it, it's not the mayor, it's not the city council, it's, it's the, the county board of supervisors who are really the, the main government um, in, in, in our community. Um, so he uh, got a, uh, a commission started, um, an 18-person multiracial commission. Um, many of the white people on that commission um, owned the land, right? So we're talking about big um, cotton plantations, cotton farms um, that have been owned for generations. And so the many of the white people in that commission um, were landowners and the black people had grown up on their land, right? So we're not that far away from that, that plantation lifestyle where you have sharecropping and, um, uh, you know, that sort of system. And so the difference was that the, the, the black people were now the new mayors of the town, the first black mayors, the first black or supervisors. And so it was some tense conversations to say the least. Right. Uh, uh, but they they worked out a, a way of interacting and listening to each other. Um, not everybody, not, not every meeting went well. <laughs> you know, there was a lot of meetings where people left angry, uh, but they stayed at the table. Um, they 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 heard each other, um, and by the end of the process, um, they they wrote a one page apology that, that that said this was a system of racism. This wasn't just two or seven men that did this. It was a system of racism that allowed this to happen from, from the president to the governor, to the sheriff, um, to everybody who was complicit in allowing the murder and then the injustice to take place because everybody knew that these men murdered Emmett Till, but they put on a sham trial anyways. And so um, this 18 board commission signed it. Uh, the sheriff spoke. Um, the board of supervisors spoke. Um, former Governor Winter spoke. Um, state senators came out and spoke. So it was a whole ceremony of uh, public officials um, uh, saying their remorse, saying saying their um, um, you know words of of, of, uh, of forgiveness, of asking for forgiveness from from the Till family. So what was the what was the outcome of that apology? Because you can issue an apology and someone could very easily say, well, okay, that was four years too late, you know, <laughs> thanks. But uh, it was uh, long overdue. So so what happens after this apology is 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 issued? Yeah. I mean, and, and you have to put yourself in in, in the family's shoes, right? That 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 every day, um, you know, they, 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 they would say that they think about Emmett, right? It, it, was, their, it was their cousin. Um, it was their loved one. Um, for Mamie, it was her child, her only child. Um, and there was never any action to do what was right. Um, and and for, for them, I, I think... Um, that that it was you know one of the Till family members spoke that day uh, a woman named Deborah Watts and and Deborah said uh, that she she had been holding her breath for fifty years and once she heard the apology said I could finally exhale and so um, we knew that those were just words on a piece of paper um, and that they were hollow unless we backed them up with action. And so this same uh, multiracial group of citizens um, who, you know, ordinarily wouldn't be working together um, because our community is still very racially divided, all black churches, all white schools, all white private schools, all black public schools. Um, This this multiracial commission began to raise money uh, to restore our courthouse back to the way it looked in 1955. Um, as part of a truth and reconciliation process, you know, the idea that we raised $4 million for the courthouse, 
began enough to put up historical markers all across the, the county. Um, and Would you and that, repeat that, Patrick? Uh, you cut out there. Oh, no. Would you repeat that? So we raised, uh, so the apology wasn't enough. We raised $4 million to restore a courthouse. We opened up a museum to live that apology out. The programs with young people and put up historical markers to tell the truth for the first time. How is that, you know, you had this multi-racial uh, commission issuing this apology and you still have this somewhat segregated or quite segregated community. How have they responded to the, to the courthouse refurbishments, to all these monuments and all of that? What, what's been the public sentiment? So, so everything, right. Everything in between, right. From um, congratulating us for finally breaking the silence um, to the day of the apology, someone backed up their truck. We had put up a historical marker that finally acknowledged what took place at that courthouse. This international scene took place there. And so we put up a historical marker. Someone backed up their truck to rip it out of the ground. And they went into the courthouse and started using the N-word and were very upset and were angry that, that someone would even mention Emmett Till's name. And so one of our board members came down to talk to him, um, an older white board member whose, whose husband was mayor of the town. And she said, you know, Joe Lee, what's the matter? And he said, well, I don't know why, who put this up? I want to know who put this up. And she pointed to herself and she said, we did. The community, the commission that's made up of 18 community members, we put this up. And he said, well, why did y'all do this? Why are y'all trying to bring up this past? This should be gone and forgotten. We shouldn't be talking about this. And she listened, right? She just listened. And he kind of kept on down that rant, this, this, this old argument that we should just ignore all the bad stuff. Let's just ignore it, right? And, and, and maybe it'll go away. And so she listened. Uh, very deeply to him. And when there was a pause in the conversation, she said, Joe Lee, how old is your son? And he said, I, I don't know. I think he's about to turn 14. And she said, well, that's the same age Emmett was. And we're not trying to force anything on anybody. We're not trying to change anybody's way of life. But we want to make sure this story is told so it never happens to anybody else's 14-year-old. So he left. He went back to his house. Um, and he came back to her house later that day and he carries a gun. So she was a little bit nervous about answering the door, but she opened it, um, a crack, right. Uh, and, <laughs> right. and so he said, listen, I was talking to my wife tonight and, you know, she works at a garment factory and we think that y'all need to have a proper unveiling of that marker the day of the apology and we'd like to donate this fabric that y'all can open this, this, this ceremony up the right way. And so we, we say that story because there's, there's folks in our community who still are reluctant, who, who are not willing to um, go there. Uh, but I, I think our, our purpose is, is to listen deeply. And, and that doesn't mean we only listen to one side. It means we listen to our entire community. Um, we create space for change. It's been much easier to call that guy a racist, and he would have stayed happily a racist. Uh, but as soon as you begin to open up the space for people to change, um, sometimes they surprise you. This experience, Patrick, that you have related is just incredible, really. Um, what are some of the key learnings that the commission and the residents of that community have learned so far that could potentially apply to other communities are there some universal truths or does every community have to kind of chart its own course? I think it's both. I think it's both. Um, you know, I think the cool thing or the amazing thing is, is, is once you take this kind of polarizing conversation from the talking heads on CNN or Fox news, and you bring it home locally, um, you begin to realize um, that you can actually have conversation um, and, and you can have real conversation um, that can change and help your community. Um, and so I, I think the, the basic principles are the same, 
Um, we use um, uh, some uh, some touchstones um, that the Winter Institute um, gave us as far as how to have um, um, good conversation, um, and those those guideposts include um, I, you know a broken record. Listen deeply is one of the first ones. Um, use I statements. Um, turn to wonder when someone makes you angry. Um, uh, uh, um, the, the, Explain the, what you mean by that. Turn to wonder, because <laughs> I, I, I mean I believe that's more of seeking to understand. But is that what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah, it's seeking to understand is turning curiosity, right? So if someone says something that they just put their foot in their mouth, and you want to just immediately pop them in the mouth, uh, you step back and you say, "Wow, I wonder who raised them. <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> I wonder." What made them think that was the right thing to say? Um, so again, you're, you're creating this space for people to show up authentically. And, and, and one of the things that we found is, is by sharing personal experiences, telling your own story, nobody can argue with you about your own story. You know, I was born in Mississippi. Nobody can tell me differently, right? So being able to, to even create that space to have um, the trust that it's needed to go further in the conversation, I think that is universal. And I think it, it, it almost has to happen on a local by local basis, right? Nobody can, can, there's no presidential order that can be done in order to create that type of space on the local level. But then the local residents get to decide their, what they're going to do, right? And, and so, I see a lot of conversations about monuments and this and that. Listen, that's up to the local community. And if they decide that something needs to stay, then that's up to them. As long as there's a democratic process and people are heard and, they, and they're able to move forward with it. And so um, I think those principles are universal. What the community ends up doing with those principles is different. Wow, that's uh, you know, there's to me. I have so many things I want to talk about with you. This is this is great. And um, I, first of all, what what was it that caused you, Patrick, as sitting in that classroom, you know, at Ole Miss University, to even notice that someone else was raising their hand that wasn't getting called on? Why you? You know, some of our listeners may be saying, but what about the color of of Patrick's skin? Why is he leading this project? That's right. That's right. So. I'm a white guy from Mississippi, uh, uh, um, came from uh, a very conservative background. Um, and, and my, my, my work has, uh, just, just really evolved based on, uh, me understanding and listening to others. Um, and, 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 you know, I, 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 after graduation, um, I worked for the winners too, but I had a moment where I was really praying about where, where I wanted my direction to go. Um, and I, I was uh, going through discernment about going to seminary, um, and and I, I was I was really feeling called to do something within the church. And um, I, through that process, um, um, like the last day of it, um, I, it was kind of where you decide what what, what you want to do. And I've been working a little bit with them at Sill Commission and helping them kind of volunteer basis and. Um, I just felt really called to do this work. Um, that's the only w- a word I can use. Um, I've been in conversation with one of the Till family members who, who lived in Mississippi. And so while majority of the Till family fled Mississippi because they were scared for their life, her side of the family stayed in Mississippi and, and we've gotten to be friends. And um, I asked her advice. I said, what, what do you think I should do? You know, they're, they're looking for somebody, they don't have any money, but they're looking for somebody to help found this organization and, and, and take it to the next level as, as a museum. And uh, she said, go for it. She said, go for it. And, and I think it had it not been for her blessing, um, had it not been for her saying this, don't be afraid, you know, go, go step into that space. Um, I, I don't think I would have done it. Um, that being said, I, I'm not trying to be the white knight. You know, I'm not on my horse as a white knight trying to save everybody. 
Um, I think, I think it's, uh, I think I've got uh, a unique position. We all do. Um, and I want to make sure that I use it uh, for the right reasons. So I say, use my white privilege for good. You know, people use white privilege, you know, that's fine. You know, it's who I am, but I want to, I want to use it for good. I want to, I want to try to create systems and communities that listen to each other um, and then take responsibility for how we're going to move forward. I think one of the things that's most important for any understanding to really be built is to have a common understanding uh, understanding of the terminology that's used when we have these conversations. And you just mentioned the term white privilege. So what exactly does that term mean? How are we supposed to interpret this term white privilege? I have no idea. <laughs> so, you know, I, you know, I think terms um, are, are exactly are thrown around a lot. Um, and I, I think there's often a backlash um, to those, right? I mean, my, my, my family grew up uh, uh, poor Mississippi, right? Uh, my, my grandfather um, didn't, didn't have air conditioning in his home until the 1970s, right? And in Mississippi, Hot as hell, right? Uh, didn't have air conditioning in the 70s. So the, I, I think I think the idea um, is 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 no from no no fault of my own. Just by being white, I have I've have per, uh, certain things that have privileged me, and 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 I think it's really difficult, right? And I and I I hate to even use that word because I think um, it can shut people down immediately. You know, like my my father, if I told him he had white privilege, he would kick me out of the house, right? So I'm not quick to use those terms because I think it's better, again, to build relationships, to hear stories, and that way you can move forward. You know, I can give you lots of different stats and statistics about how, you know, a white person in Mississippi, a white male without a high school diploma makes the same amount of money as a black female with a college degree. So a black female with a college degree and a white man without a high school degree make the same amount of money in Mississippi. I can tell well, you, you that. To- and that doesn't mean as much. I mean, some people, it still goes over their head. And so, uh, but, uh, right. but there are some, some, you know, there's some, there's some, you can look at those pieces and, and know that's True. Right. Well, I, I think you've given a couple of examples. I mean, this is just an interpretation that I would have of that. And for example, in the classroom, you rose your hand, raised your hand and got called on. And right. in a way, that's a form of privilege, right? Being recognized. Um, when you speak, maybe there are more people that that listen, right? I mean, I think one of the reasons why it's important that that we have this conversation, and I mean people of uh, you know, white race. I mean, we have to be able to to have this discussion and, and understand what's going on. And, and possibly people are going to hear you, maybe. It, and that's a privilege that otherwise wouldn't. You know, I, I, the story you told about the monument, that guy going in, it, it struck me that, you know, it was the the, the county commissioner that was that was white that was able to be heard by that, even just listening to be able to reach that individual. It, it, but to me, that touched, I mean, that story made me very emotional. Um, but that person's attitude changed. And I think that's the, 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 the importance of us having this conversation today, Patrick. You have the ability with, I, I would say, that type of privilege to maybe have people hear this story that otherwise might not. That's it, Spencer. That's it. 100%. That, that, that's it. I mean, you, you nailed it. I think it's, it's, it's how do you use your role, your position in life? Um, how do you use it for good? And, and I think it's much easier to be silent on some of these issues. It's, it's easier to kind of fade into the background. That's someone else's problem. This is, this is someone else's, you know, but how do you, how do you use your position in life? And not, again, not that you're the hero of the story that you're going to conquer and you're going to, you know, no, that, that you, you use it for, for the, the, the good of all and, and, and create that state. And, and so one of the things I did when just being in my position is making sure that we were listening to Black voices, right? The Till story, for years, it's centered around white voices. Um, so the, the white woman 
at the center of this was a woman named Carolyn Bryant. Um, and so Carolyn Bryant said in 1955 that Emmett jumped over the counter, grabbed her and said, had you ever, have you ever been with a black man before? Well, we knew that was a lie because his cousins were there in 1955 sitting on the porch and they didn't hear any commotion inside. Nobody interviewed the black cousins until 1985. They took her and they took her story and they said, that's the truth. Um, The same goes with the murderers. The murderers confessed to the murder in 1956 and told Look Magazine that they murdered Emmett Till. Everybody believed their version of the story, even though a black sharecropper was there in 1955 and had seen what really took place. Um, 18-year-old black man saw what took place and people refused to listen to his story. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is, is not rewrite history, but to listen to the black voices that authentically were there and who have the knowledge and the truth. And so uh, lifting those. And you know, so Patrick, sorry to interrupt, but this, this is really, I think, why this is relevant on a podcast that's about team performance. Because we need each other in the community. I want to talk to you a little bit about that. We need each other in the workplace. We need different voices and different perspectives in order to be strong. If we just have one perspective or one voice, we will make mistakes business leaders will make choices that are not as rich or considered if they had listened to more voices. And this is the opportunity we have as a country. We are one of the greatest countries in in the world because of our diversity. We have people that have come from all over the, the world to we've called it the melting pot. Like I'm first generation American. My my parents, you know, mother Canadian, father German. I know Patrick, you have, you know, you have uh, different races in your in your background, uh, Polynesian and all kinds of stuff. That's what makes this country great is the is the different heritages that have come together to this this land. But we need to listen to each other because our different perspectives make us stronger, not weaker. That's it. And, and, and I, I think it goes, you know, we're all different, right? And, and, and whether we have the same uh, racial identity or, 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 or backgrounds, we, we all have different gifts um, that, that we've been blessed with. And so I think it's, it's, it's really understanding, um, um, one, that we, we are different. We do see the world in a different way. Um, and, and, and trying to cultivate teams um, that have them as much diversity as possible. Um, and, and using that as the, as the best strength. And, and I think that's exactly right. Our country, um, you know, we, we, we talk about in the South, it's, it's a gumbo, right? It's got everything in it. And, 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 and that's what makes a gumbo so delicious is that it stews in there. Uh, uh, it, it comes out exactly the way you want it. And so, um, I, I, we lift that up on our team. Um, you know, we, we made sure to, to hire, uh, 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 the first museum director is African-American. Um, he's from the community. Um, and so, you know, just making, you know, making sure that we're intentional about having diversity throughout our, our team and our program. One thing, Patrick, that you mentioned when we had a conversation last week was that um, reconciliation is not an event. It's a process and it can take a while. How can we have patience as we go through this progression? Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And, 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 and I, um, I hate it. Right. Because because I wish I wish there was, you know, a button we could push and this is all over. Right. And, and, and we're living in, in, in the utopia that we all want. Um, I think often in, in, in American society, we, we have a, a microwave solution. Right. We want the three minute put it in for three minutes, hit enter and it's done. Um, and the, the, the tragic thing or, or, or the reality is it, it doesn't happen that quickly. Um, the good thing is that change has happened. You know, I talked to, to Reverend Wheeler Parker, who's 
was Emmett Till's cousin who came down on the train with Emmett. So he was 16 years old and Emmett was 14. Um, he was in the bedroom next door when Emmett got kidnapped. Um, and he had to come back to Chicago with the casket, right? This casket came, came to Chicago and he did too. And so uh, Wheeler talks a lot about um, if you didn't live it, if you didn't live 1955 Mississippi, you'll never understand it. It was that bad. Um, he talks about, you know, uh, one eyeball, a reckless eyeball could get you killed. Meaning if you're a black man walking down the street and you look the wrong way at a white woman, you could be killed. And he, may, he I mean, he lived it, right? Um, we don't live in 1955 Mississippi anymore, right? We, we, we do have protections. We do have a legal system. We do have more accountability. And so I think it's good for us to say, you know, what hap- what's happening now in our society is not good, right? That you can be killed for jogging, right? That is not an okay scenario, um, no matter the society. But it's better. Um, there's, there's moral outrage. Um, there's, a, there's voices. There's lawyers. There's people dedicated to this cause and this work. And so... Um, there are people that are able to express themselves. You know, one of the things we talked about is maybe taking a knee. And there are many people listening to this that 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 really causes frustration because they see how much privilege everybody has. And and it's kind of like, well, can't we just move past this? We don't. It's kind of like the, the guy at the courthouse, right, saying, let's, let's just forget about all of it. And I, I think in many ways, I'm guilty of, of that. Just, you know, you see athletes that are privileged in terms of their ability to earn. And, and many people have the opportunity for education today. And so some white people are frustrated and say, Hey, I'm not going to watch you know sports anymore because they, they just don't get it. What do you say to that? And I know that could be controversial, but I mean, how, how do you respond to that? Yeah. I wish I made as much money as some of the athletes do, man, that, that would be great. Right. Um, so, so, um, you know, I, I, I think the beauty is, is, is that exactly right. That we, that we, that we do live in a democracy. Right. We don't live in China where, where if you protest and you say the wrong thing, you can, you know, uh, uh, we live in a democracy where, where your voice matters. Um, and, and I commend um, the, the NFL and, and these other, um, um, you know, national sports leagues for, for allowing these voices to be heard. Um, and I think the, the, the reality is that those voices have, have been there all along. Um, people have been trying to raise up and say, hey, we're not in the more perfect union. We can still get better. Um, and and I, I would say absolutely, but, you know, to, to back up, to use that same perspective. Uh, I, wonder, I wonder why that person is doing that. You know, I, that, that, that can't be easy for them, you know, to, to lose, potentially lose audiences, to lose money to lose um, endorsements. Sponsorships maybe. Oh, and, and, right. I wonder why they're going out of their way to, to take that stand. Um, I, and that's the second thing I'd say is, 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 to, is to read, right? Read, read Black literature. Um, um, Natasha Trethewey was the former U.S. Poet Laureate of the United States. She's, she's written her own memoir. Read um, Kiese Lehman, who is a writer from Mississippi. These are all, are all black authors. Read some black authors um, so that you can start to understand what it's like to be black in America. Um, and, I, and, I, and I know that's a tough task, right? We can barely turn on Netflix, but, but, but expose yourself um, to, to communities outside of your, your own little circle. I think, that's a, I think that's a fabulous idea. And could you spell the, the names of those, those authors, please? Yeah, so uh, Natasha Trethewey is the first one. So N-A-T-A-S-H-A, Trethewey, T-R-E-T-H-Way, W-A-Y. And then Kiese Lamont is uh, K, and I might be, I apologize, Mr. Layman Lamont, if if I messed it up. Um, Kiese is K-I-E-S-S-E. And then layman is L-A-Y-M-O-N, um, K-S-A-Lamont. 
uh, is at least how I've been told to pronounce it. Um, he's he's going to be speaking um, at an anniversary event August 28th, uh, which is Emmett Till's 65th anniversary of his murder. And so KSA is going to be reading from his his own um, memoir um, about his experiences as a, as a young black man in Mississippi and what what that was like. Patrick, what's the end game? You know, we've used these terms, racial healing. We've talked about reconciliation. I come from an accounting background, so reconciliation means bringing into balance the debits and the credits or my assets equal my liabilities plus owner's equity. Um, So when it comes to the work specifically that you're doing and then the broader effort that is now going on throughout this nation, um, in your view, what's the end game? Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's a great question. I don't think there. I don't. I don't have that answer, right? Especially as a as a white man, I don't have that answer, right? Because I think it's a conversation. It's a process um, that gets us there. Um, I think when um, we issued that apology, I don't. I don't. That was that was just the that was just the first step. And I think in many communities in the United States we haven't even taken that first step, right? And so how do we know where we're going unless we're acknowledging where we've been? And so I think the, 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 the first needed work is, is to set the record straight, right? And so, so many people uh, think, have this history. Uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, stood up, all the slaves were free, Rosa Parks sat down, and we were all able to vote, right? And, and, and I think once you start to pull back some of the true realities that, yeah, Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, but they were then forced into indentured servitude in the, in the Deep South for the next 60 years, right? More, right? So from 1890 to 1964, we lived under Jim Crow, which was, you know, just another name for, for slavery. And in many cases, it was worse because you would be housed in penitentiaries and leased out. And in the coal mines in Alabama and Northern Alabama, the still, still places they would, your life expectancy was about five to eight years. So these, these kind of hidden histories about lynchings, about um, what, how bad it's been in our country. I think the first step is, is acknowledging it. Um, And then it's getting to a place where we say we need each other. Um, because if we're going to take responsibility for our past, it's got to be done in a way that's inclusive of everyone. And, 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 and that's including white people as well. Right. And, and we, we have to be a part of that process. Uh, we can't say we're taking our ball, we're going home. We have to say, what, what is the hard work of, of creating a, a, a community and society that we all want to live on? And that, and again, I think it's easier in some ways to do that on the local level. Um, one, once we get to the national, it, it becomes more polarizing. But, but I, I do believe there's, there is a way forward. And, and hell, if Mississippi can do it, right, I, th- I think we, we all can do it. So, so what about Ireland and South Africa and, and, you know, two Tutsis and Hutus, right? And, and I mean, we can all do it. Can't we? I mean, there's actually people around the world that are watching us right now to see how we handle this, this moment in time in history. That's a hundred percent it. That's a hundred percent. We, we, we've, we've learned uh, from the South African model of truth and reconciliation. Nobody, everybody thought immediately that that country would break out in civil war like had to happen in so many African countries. Um, Northern Ireland, they, they never thought that, 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 that violence would stop. And it's still not over, right? There's still this ongoing kind of nurturing uh, of civil society, of ways that, that we engage with each other. But um, the world is watching. And, 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 and they're saying, you know, what, you know, can democracies, multiracial democracies survive, right? Can, can, can that work happen? And, and, um, I think absolutely. I think it makes our country stronger. It makes us a, a, a better place to live. It allows us to bring in new people into this country um, that, that can help us um, um, innovate. Um, I, it's, 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 uh, it, but it's not inevitable, right? It takes, it takes hard work and nurturing to have such a, a beautiful and diverse country. 
And that's the process that you're talking about. And, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful that you came on and, and so impressed with really your, your experience and, and your perspective. I'm, I'm also grateful to Joseph Olaszewski and, and Judith Bunnell for uh, really bringing us to the attention that, that, you know, you were out there and that this project existed and that they care enough. I mean, here's some people out of that we met in Georgetown uh, in the DC area and they just, they just think the world of what you're doing and that this is a story that that gets to get out and gets to be heard and so grateful to to them and their family for uh, introducing us no doubt jo- joseph and his family are great folks and um are helping us think about education and, and and supporting us for their family foundation so they're they're great great people so Wonderful. patrick patrick if people want to learn more about the work that you're doing there with the emmett till interpretive center or the other initiatives that you have going on, or they would just want to have a conversation with you and, and gain greater understanding. What's the best way for them to connect with you and connect with the work that you're doing? Yeah. So, so I'd say um, our website, Emmett-Till.org and that's E M M E T T hyphen till T I L L.org. And then uh, just look us up on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook. And um, like I said, August 28th, uh, we'll be having some anniversary events and um, thinking about these hard questions. So thinking about justice, thinking about healing, thinking about memorialization. What what does that mean, and 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 what does it mean in the context of the moment we're we're living in right now? And Spencer, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Thank you, Christian. Uh, Spencer at altiumleadership.com. That's A-L-T-I-U-M leadership.com. It's my email, or go to altiumleadership.com, our website. All right, excellent. And people can reach me at cnapier at gp4.com. That's cnapier at gpfour.com or go to the website gp4.com. Patrick, Spencer, thank you so much. Uh, Really enjoyable, important conversation. And uh, Patrick, appreciate your time very much. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you all for your questions and your open hearts and and listening. Thank you all. 